and welcome to the June 2018 podcast of AJPH. Does this tune remind you of something? Of course, it's a pastiche of a song the Rolling Stones released in 1968, and it inspired Francis Jacob since it is about activism in the 60s. And the question we are addressing today is, is the new public health activism different from the old one? But first, why are we talking about activism? Because we are in 2018, and that 50 years ago, 1968, remains the symbolic year of a transformative decade, the 60s. In this country and worldwide, almost all values that had dominated the first two-thirds of the 20th century were deeply contested. Almost all ruling institutions were derailed. Public health emerged from the 60s profoundly transformed. And today, there is a new public health activism, which, in its most recent forms, is developing new ways of challenging racism, sexism, and gun violence. How different is this new activism from the older one? For this purpose, I interviewed three people. Two public health scientists who were student activists in the 60s, and one current MPH student. Let's listen to them. After I was uh, arrested and expelled from Columbia, Columbia the same day that they suspended me, they notified my draft board that I was no longer a student. And the, uh, the draft board uh, reclassified me. But in a ironic twist of fate, uh, because I'd been arrested at Columbia and as part of the demonstrations, that the draft, uh, you couldn't be drafted if you had a, a court case pending against you. So Columbia both sent me uh, to, to be drafted, but then by having so many students arrested, prevented me from being drafted. And by the time the court case was settled, the lottery had been set up and I was fortunate enough to have a, a low lottery number and so I wasn't drafted. This is Nick Freudenberg. He's a professor at the City University of New York School of Public Health. Nick was involved in the Students for a Democratic Society in the 1960s when he attended Columbia University. He has been a public health activist ever since. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. It is at the Pentagon where the first test of strength comes. Military police contain the crowd, but clashes soon break out. Two-day protest ends with over 600 arrested and the widespread opinion that the demonstration made everyone a loser. In those days, it was before scanning and everything. I, was, I sat there and, and entered the results by hand into sheets that would be key-punched and started seeing really strange patterns to open-ended questions. And so I pulled uh, my husband, Dr. Stephen Stellman, in and said, you know, I think there's something going on here. Gene Stellman, a professor at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health, is my second guest. 
She and her husband, Steve Stellman, achieved groundbreaking research on the health impacts of Agent Orange. You may recall that uh, this was a chemical used during the Vietnam War to help American soldiers during combat see the enemy's troops. At some point, Vietnam veterans started to suspect that some serious health problems occurred as a consequence of having been deployed in areas sprayed with Agent Orange. This Agent Orange from Vietnam, we carry it with us still. It stays inside for years and years before it starts to kill. My third guest has a very different life story than Freudenberg and Stellman. Kelsey Schertz grew up in a military family. Her father deployed over 20 times overseas. She self-identifies as a military brat, and she believes that her experiences growing up in a military family heavily shaped and informed her values and impressions of war and service. There can definitely be some um, very um, passionate conversations about whether or not the U.S. involvement in Vietnam um, was a rightful involvement. But I think what we generally circle back to, again, is just this idea that um, when when you've agreed to uh, be in the military, you, you honor your service and you honor your country through your service. Schertz is currently MPH student and a research professional supervisor at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, I speak with these three interviewees about their personal experiences with topics of war, activism, and what people from different perspectives may do when they think it is important to stand up for public health rights. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of AJPH, and this is May 5th, 2018. I wanted to start by asking my interviewees, why was it that they went to public health in the first place? So, Nick, um, this podcast is about the 60s and public health. And I would like to know, when did you hear the first call to be involved, you know, in the students' uh, movement and in particular in the uh, movement anti against the Vietnam War? Yes, well, certainly when I was in high school in the middle 60s, I read in the newspapers and saw on television about the war, and it was very disturbing. The images that came into our living rooms on television showing children being killed, uh, villages being napalmed, and that was very upsetting. But it was really when I went to uh, university, to Columbia, in fall uh, 1966, and in my first uh, days and weeks there, I met uh, people who were actively organizing against the war in Vietnam. And I think it was their arguments and messages that were so compelling, so persuasive, that I felt I had to join them and do what I could to end what seemed to me this 
uh, terrible war. Let's consider now the trajectory of Jean Stallman and how she came to study the health effects of Agent Orange. In in college, I was demonstrating with all the rest of the people my in my age group and demography against the war. Um, but at that point, at that point in time, no one really even thought or knew much about Agent Orange. It was a non-issue. It was even a non-issue from a health perspective in the scientific community. Um, people were worried about ecological warfare, but not the health effects were not really known or understood. So how did this occur? Why, why did you become interested in Agent Orange? Well, it was actually quite accidental because uh, a, a group of uh, uh, veterans, uh, kind of lefty uh, veterans, came to me and said, you know, we think, and this was in the late 70s, we think that our, our troops were being affected. And I had been doing other research, so I had some ready-made questionnaires. But I said, oh, but we didn't spray our own troops. You know, the policy was that they shouldn't go into sprayed areas. And um, But I agreed to work on this um, volunteer to do uh, a survey of their members. We first started to see um, sebaceous cysts, fat skin effects, eye effects, um, people reporting on um, uh, birth defects that seemed to be, re- be related, but it was a small group. And, and you know the uh, self-selection problem in in not and non-random surveys, but it was these were open-ended questions, and they were repeating themselves enough that you know I got a kind of uh, itchy feeling on my skin that something may be going on. Kelsey Schertz was not born in the sixties. I've asked her to tell me about her family's role serving in the military and also about the number of military brats that there may be in the U.S. We have a very service-oriented family, Um, you know, certainly not just um, the armed forces, uh, but also um, police officers, federal officers. Our dad um, served in the Air Force from 1991 to 2013, and during that time, he deployed um, overseas more than 20 times. And there are many, many, many people out there like us. And um, at any one time over the past several decades, about two million kids have had a parent in the military. I've been interviewing other people for this podcast who actually were motivated to go into public health because of their involvement in, uh, you know, in the activism of the 60s. But why did you go to public health? Um, you know, I think public health is a really interesting, you know, it, it's a marriage between scientific um, fact, um, health policy, and uh, what what is really happening in terms of what we do on a day-to-day basis to help the healthiness of populations. Now, um, I think one thing that's really interesting with with military families is that some of the some of the data that does exist suggests that children of people who are in the military are more likely to go into service oriented careers themselves. And I think both with my sister and I, you know, growing up in in the military and um, constantly being part of, of of a broader discussion about global needs and the needs of the country, you get this uh, sense that you're part of big, something bigger than yourself and that you 
have an obligation to um, help people. Public health certainly gives me the opportunity to um, have a role in, um, you know, taking scientific fact from clinical trials and translating it into practice and policy. Having understood why they went into public health, I was then interested to know the type of activities they had been carrying out. Actually, the whole clue to what was actually going on came when uh, we had access to some of the underlying information on troop movements that the CDC had. And we got that because we were working with the court on this big lawsuit um, after they settled. And then we could see that, wow, these military records and the dioxin levels really were related. Gene, just to, to make sure, you had information on the movement of troops in Vietnam, and you had the information about the areas that had been sprayed with dioxin, and both actually overlapped. Yes, and, and what, ha what ended up happening was that the CDC had this information and they published a paper that said that there was no relationship. And when we realized that we had in our hands the same data, we reanalyzed it and showed that, in fact, there was a very large correlation between where the troops were And, um, and the blood, blood levels that were observed in a small cohort that the CDC had assembled. Um, and that's, that became the, that became key testimony and key evidence in the, um, both in oversight hearings in the Congress and then in the Institute of Medicine, um, which, uh, the Congress asked to investigate after, um, It passed the Agent Orange Act. And, and tell me, to do all this work, which was uh, going against, you know, the, the current, uh, was it easy or were you put under pressure? <laughs> were you threatened? How was it to be a responsible scientist then? We were very much threatened. At that point, my husband was at the American Cancer Society and we were using all of their um, uh, computer facilities. Mm -hmm. I was at Columbia. We were really maligned. We were threatened. Um, so, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough to be, uh, it's tough to be, I, I don't recommend being a protester as a means of career advancement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used uh, Gene Stellman's word to ask uh, Nick Freudenberg about the impact of his public health activism. So t tell me, Nick, do you have examples of situation in which uh, you've actually contributed, you know, key testimony or key evidence that led to uh, major changes, you know, really that caused a shift in the policy of some, you know, institution or authority related to public health? Well, I think my work has uh, mostly been with community organizations, social movements, and I can give you a few examples. In uh, the first years of my career, I worked on environmental health issues here in New York City, actually in the community where uh, 
I live still now. And we did work around transportation of hazardous materials, and we uh, worked to uh, get the city to prevent hazardous materials from going through the streets of Washington Heights, where had there been an accident, they would have contaminated uh, thousands of people. I was part of a group uh, that worked around childhood lead poisoning here in New York City, and our group actually sued the New York City Health Department and the Housing Department for failing to enforce laws around lead poisoning. And our evidence showing the patterns of lead poisoning in Washington Heights and the South Bronx and Central Harlem, I think, helped us to both mobilize organizations and to have the evidence we needed to be able to be successful in court. Kelsey Schertz told me that when she began to work with cancer patients, some were Vietnam veterans, and she witnessed in person different sorts of long-term consequences on their health. And so you told me this very interesting uh, circumstances that in your work, uh, you've actually faced some of the long-term consequences of the <laughs> Vietnam War, right? In my current work, I, I have the privilege of working with Vietnam veterans on a lung cancer screening and tobacco cessation study. Um, interestingly, you know, most of the veterans that I work with started smoking during their service in Vietnam. The ration packs at the time included cigarettes. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, <laughs> so I've had a, a several different, you know, really unique opportunities to work with veterans. Finally, I was interested to know whether Nick Freudenberg and Gene Stellman had recommendations to make to young activists. Now that you see uh, these young people that are kind of getting mobilized against gun violence uh, and uh, that are trying to change the, the rules of this land, um, what do you think? Do, do you see some analogy with the the type of activism that you've been involved with? Certainly the young people in Florida, who I think have been just so uh, brave and articulate and outspoken uh, and, and having an ability to have short-term goals of passing legislation in Florida, but realizing that wasn't enough. Being determined to register to vote in 2018 and 2020. But I also see the women of the who are saying no more sexual violence, the women of At Me Too. I see uh, black people and others who are insisting that black lives matter. I see all the people who have, you know, protested uh, Trump's policies around immigration. What would be the advice that uh, you would give to this new generation if they are going into public health activism? I think uh, I have told my students for many decades, uh, I think that the successes of public health have come about from combining research, science, policy analysis, and activism. That's how we move things forward. So I would encourage uh, people who are coming into public health, yes, to make sure we know the science, that we know the epidemiology, we know the policy analysis, but also we know how to mobilize people, we know how to communicate, we know how to uh, speak truth 
to powerful people in uh, powerful positions. Let's ask now the same question to Gene Stellman. And so on the basis of, of all this experience, Gene, uh, do you have any recommendation for uh, younger scientists, you know, who also want to be uh, responsible scientists like you were, and who may, you know, also tackle issues that uh, today's are difficult to tackle, like, uh, let's say, uh, gun violence prevention? What would you tell them? I think that I don't think they should give up. <laughs> I think that um, at, at the end of the day, uh, we as scientists and we as people in the professions are still in the privileged classes, um, even if we can't achieve every single um, award <laughs> that we w that we think we deserve, um, and that being being true to why you're in public health is more important than um, yet another uh, a step ahead in rank. I think it's also really, really important to be methodologically honest. Uh, you, you know, it's it's you can't you can't jump to unwarranted conclusions. So you have to kind of walk a middle track when you deal with the public. You have to be honest with them. But you can't say, you can't jump to a conclusion that something has caused something else because it just ends up cheapening the whole argument. So when you're in public health, you're always on a kind of a tightrope of trying to keep the trust of the people that you're working with at the same time that you're trying to keep the, your integrity, um, your scientific integrity and your personal integrity whole. And so it, it's, it's not easy. And this is where Kelsey Schertz shares Gene Stallman's concerns about the health conditions of Vietnam War veterans, and she sounds revolted by what she perceives as an injustice. Um, and and that can be one of the frustrating parts about working with Vietnam veterans is that you just they they had to sacrifice quite a bit for their country, and when they got home, you know, it's almost like the second war started when they really had to kind of fight for the care that they really rightfully deserved. You see, Kelsey, when, when I hear your enthusiasm, your passion, uh, and I see you're talking about, you know, public health uh, for helping people, other would say it's a kind of uh, public health activism. What, what, how would you react to the fact if I tell you, you sound like a public health activist? <laughs> I mean, hey, I think public health, you know, it, it, you need to be an activist if you work in public health. Um, you know, I think people who work in public health have an obligation to take information that's usually not very easily, easy to digest to the lay, to the lay reader and translate it and make it something that people of, you know, all professional backgrounds and all education levels can understand, um, and give people a platform to say, I have the information I need to make informed decisions. Um, and I think that's just, I think it's something, you know, if you want to call me a public health activist, I think I'm just fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much, Kelsey. AGPH has been trying to stimulate a dialogue between people of public health that seem to profoundly diverge in their values and in their politics. Freudenberg and Stallman 
have had very different life trajectories than shirts. But there is a lot in common in their views of public health and on the need for a public health activism. I want, therefore, to end this podcast with a reflection made by Nick Freudenberg about the mistakes that had been done in the 60s. Political activists did not listen sufficiently to create a broader coalition. In the 60s, we didn't listen enough. I think we were so outraged by what we saw going on in Vietnam and so uh, determined to take action as forcefully as we could that we didn't bring everybody together who would have been willing to support us. And I don't, uh, I, I fully understand why we felt so determined uh, to be strong in ending the war in Vietnam, but I think we could have done a better job uh, mobilizing a broader coalition had we spent more time uh, listening to the women's movement, listening to the civil rights movement, uh, listening to others, and looking to find common ground. And what I found so inspiring about the young people uh, in, in Florida was they seemed to have that ability to talk to other people who were influenced by guns, to talk to uh, people from other groups and to look to find common ground and then still to be very strong in their opinions. So listening to other opinions is crucial for being an effective public health activist. That's it. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. About the music, as I said in the intro, Francis Jacob prepared a pastiche of a famous rock song released in 1968. This is Alfredo Morabia at HAPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe on the podcast app of your phone or tablet. The sources of the clips from news, TV shows and songs are cited in the transcript of this podcast. <laughs>